Our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 to 32. This passage can be found in the Pew Bible on page 27. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. That's Genesis 32, verse 22 to 32. The same night he, Jacob, arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip, hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. When Jacob asked him, please tell me your name, but he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not, not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of his thigh. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right, so in a book called A Severe Mercy, a man named Sheldon Von Aachen, he's referred to as Van in the book, he writes about his marriage to a woman named Jean Davis. She's referred to as Davy. Van and Davy loved each other deeply and they were deeply committed to one another. They weren't Christians at the beginning of their marriage, but over time, both of them came to know the Lord. Davy trusted Jesus first, and Van came along afterward, partly through the help of a friend whose name you may recognize, C.S. Lewis. As Davy progressed in her faith, Van, who it's possible maybe even wasn't a Christian at this point, he struggled with what became obvious. He no longer had his wife's exclusive affection. He wasn't even her first love anymore. Jesus had her heart. And although it took a while for him to realize it, he was jealous. Well, in the midst of the situation, tragedy struck. Davy got sick, and she died, I believe, at the age of 40. Understandably, her husband, Van, the author of the book, he was grieved, and he wrote to C.S. Lewis, and Lewis helped him understand where God may have been in his pain. So Lewis wrote to him and said this, perpetual springtime is not allowed. You have been treated with a severe mercy. You have been brought to see how, or to see how true and very frequent this is, that you were jealous of God. Well, then, by God's grace, agreed with Lewis's assessment, remarking that one result of Davy's death was that it, quote, 
brought me as nothing else could do to know and end my jealousy of God. Like, don't miss that. It brought me as nothing else could do to know and end my jealousy of God. Because of that, because of how the Lord brought about good through Davy's death, Van saw it rightly as a severe mercy. Severe because it involved the death of his dear wife. Mercy because the Lord, among other good things, revealed to Van his jealousy and allowed him to put an end to it. Van sums this up beautifully, I think. He says, that death, so full of suffering for us both, suffering that, that still overwhelmed my life, was yet a severe mercy. A mercy as severe as death, a severity as merciful as love. This morning, we're continuing our series in the book of Genesis, and we're studying chapters 32 and 33, which focus on Jacob and his brother Esau. In this passage, God treats Jacob with a severe mercy, perhaps even more than one. First, he calls Jacob to return to the land of Canaan, which meant that he was going to have to encounter his brother Esau, who, last we heard, wanted to kill Jacob because he cheated him out of his father's blessing. As Jacob obediently travels in that direction toward Canaan, the prospect of meeting an angry, bloodthirsty Esau drives him to the Lord in desperate prayer. It's a severe mercy. Second, before Jacob encounters Esau, God wrestles with him. And during this mysterious match, the Lord breaks Jacob of his prideful self-reliance and brings him to the place where he pleads with God for blessing and acknowledges his sin. God brings Jacob low before he blesses him. He deals Jacob a severe mercy. And third, Jacob, having been humbled, blessed, and delivered by God, approaches Esau, a changed man. And he discovers that God had changed Esau's attitude toward him. The two brothers reconcile and have a sweet reunion before Jacob eventually does make his way into Canaan. He buys a piece of property and worships the Lord. So we're going to work through those three items this morning one at a time. First will be the threat. That'll be verses 1 to 21 in chapter 32. Second will be the wrestling match, verses 22 to 32 of chapter 32. And third will be the reunion. That's verses 1 to 20 of chapter 33. So as you can tell, that is a lot of Scripture we're covering this morning. So buckle up and plan to stay till 3. No, I'm, I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, we do have a lot of Scripture to cover, and we're not going to read all of those verses. Uh, I'll summarize at some points, and we will focus in more specifically at others. Um, so that said, let's start with point one, the threat. So chapter 32 begins with Jacob on his way to the land of Canaan. He's going there simply because God told him to. In Genesis 31.3, the Lord says, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So where's Jacob been, and how did he get there? Those are important questions, and to answer them, we need to talk about Jacob and his brother Esau. The two of them have quite the backstory. 
It began before they were born, when God, reversing the custom of the time, told their mother Rebekah that the older child, Esau, would serve the younger child, Jacob. He continued when they got older, and Jacob took advantage of Esau and made him sell his birthright, his inheritance as the firstborn of the family, in exchange for some stew. And it reached a breaking point when Jacob disguised himself as Esau and tricked their father Isaac into giving him the blessing that he had intended for Esau, the firstborn. Now, Esau wasn't innocent in all of that. After all, Genesis 25, 34 says that Esau despised his birthright. He held it in contempt. But what should be clear is Jacob's wrongdoing in these matters. Yes, the Lord said that, Jacob would, or that Esau would serve Jacob, but instead of trusting the Lord and waiting on him, Jacob took matters into his own hands and he seized what he wanted. Esau understood that. That's why in Genesis 27, 36, he laments, is he not rightly named Jacob? Jacob meant heel grabber, referring to the fact that when they were born, he had a hold of Esau's heel. But because of Jacob's actions, it also came to mean something along the lines of deceiver. So Esau laments, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Esau was angry. We're told in Genesis 27, 41, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. So that's quite the backstory with these two brothers. Now, at this point, thankfully, Rebecca, the boy's mom, she learned of Esau's intentions and she sent Jacob away. She told him to stay with her brother Laban uh, in, in a land called Haran, which was outside of the land of Canaan. That's important. And on his way there, uh, at a place that he later, later named Bethel, Jacob had a dream in which the Lord told him this. This is Genesis 28, 13 to 15. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. What a great promise from God. Despite Jacob's actions, the Lord extended to him the covenant promises of offspring and land. That's a promise that the Lord first gave to Jacob's grandfather Abraham and then to his father Isaac. And the Lord told him that he was going to be with him wherever he went, and he promised to eventually bring him back to the land of Canaan. But at this point, Jacob journeys on. He exits the promised land, and then he lives in Paddan Aram with his uncle Laban. The Lord certainly blessed Jacob while he was there, but Jacob's time with Laban was also filled with conflict, and partly because Laban like Jacob, proved to be quite skilled at deception and trickery. So Jacob lived with Laban, all told, for about 20 years. And that's where like, he's been all this time. 
20 years with his uncle Laban on the run from his bloodthirsty brother. But it was time. God was ready to bring Jacob back to the land of Canaan as he promised. And so he told Jacob to return and he promised to be with him. And Jacob obeyed. He parted ways with Laban, which itself was an ordeal, and he started the journey back home. And that's where Genesis 32 begins. Jacob is traveling back to the land of Canaan as the Lord commanded him. Now, that might sound easy enough, but there's a problem. He's going back to the land of Canaan. Remember what last happened in the land of Canaan, the situation with Esau. So he's going back, and that means he's going to have to deal with his brother. And again, last we heard, Esau planned to kill him because he cheated him out of his father's blessing. So the questions at this point are, is Jacob's past sin catching up to him? After all this time, does Esau still want him dead? If so, how in the world is Jacob going to get out of this one? Is God going to keep his word and keep Jacob safe? Well, the first thing chapter 32 says is that the angels of God met Jacob on his way. That may have been a, a real encouragement to him, given the uncertain future that was ahead. Next, Jacob sends messengers to Esau and Seir, which is outside of the land of Canaan. Look what he tells them to say in verses 4 to 5. He says, we're in chapter 32 now, 4 to 5. Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I, may found, that I may find favor in your sight. Do you see how Jacob defers to Esau here? He calls Esau my Lord, and he refers to himself as Esau's servant. That's really interesting, especially given the fact that the Lord told Rebekah that Esau was going to be the one to serve Jacob, not the other way around. And that when Isaac blessed Jacob in Genesis 27, 29, he said, let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. So that said, maybe Jacob has a guilty conscience. After all, he cheated Esau out of his father's blessing. And now he's returning to Esau as his, or now he's referring to Esau as his Lord and to himself as Esau's servant. Still, I'm, I'm not sure that Jacob's message in verses four to five is genuine or strategic. I think it's personally hard to tell. If it's genuine, he may be showing signs of real repentance here, deferring to Esau and subtly even uh, reversing the blessing that he cheated Esau out of. If it's simply strategic, he may be just trying to flatter and appease his brother in order to get he and his family out of a jam. Either way, it doesn't seem to work. The messengers return and they tell Jacob that Esau is coming to meet him with 400 men. That had to seem scary. It must have looked like Esau was planning to go to war. And it seems like that's how Jacob took it. The text says that he was greatly afraid and distressed in verse 7, and that he divides into two camps so that if Esau attacks, at least one camp can escape. 
And then in his desperation, Jacob calls out to God in prayer. Look with me at verses 9 to 12. He says, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. This is actually a pivotal moment for Jacob. Sidney Gradanus, he points out its significance. He says, for the first time in his life, Jacob prays for deliverance. This is the longest prayer in the book of Genesis. Finally, Jacob the deceiver admits that he is not worthy of God's steadfast love that has kept him safe and made him rich in spite of his trickery and deceptions. Finally, Jacob realizes that he cannot do it alone. He needs the Lord to deliver him. And not only Jacob, Jacob is now also concerned about the mothers with the children. This is the beginning of a new Jacob. He is no longer self-sufficient. He prays earnestly. He confesses that he is not worthy of God's steadfast love, and he is concerned not only for himself, but also for others. So the threat of attack by Esau drives Jacob to the place of desperate prayer and dependence on God. Notice what he does next. In verses 13 to 21, Jacob stays behind in the camp and sends Esau, who he's still referring to as his Lord, a massive amount of animals and separate droves as gifts. And verse 20 tells us his motive. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. Again, it's possible that Jacob is displaying real repentance here and offering to return what the blessing had afforded him. It could also be the case that he's still scheming, trying to avoid his brother's wrath. So what are we to make of all of that? Well, I think two things. One, regarding Jacob's sin against Esau. Regardless of how we interpret Jacob's actions in this chapter, he clearly seems to be just painfully aware that he sinned against his brother. Now, it's possible that the Lord changed Jacob through the trials he suffered with his uncle Laban. If you've been with us as we've been, as we've been going through Genesis, maybe you remember some of that. Well, if that's the case, and if Jacob's actions toward Esau here are genuine, I think he can serve as an example of real repentance for us. Here's a man who acknowledges his guilt, confesses his unworthiness and need before God, and like Zacchaeus in the Gospel of Luke, offers to repay what he stole. Do you need to hear that today? Have you wronged anyone and need to trust the Lord and make it right? If so, don't wait. Confess your sin to the Lord. Trust him to take care of you and reconcile with that person you've offended. But it's also possible that Jacob's trying to flatter Esau, that again, he's taking matters into his own hands just to get out of trouble. If that's the case, I think we can still identify with Jacob, right? That may have been your disposition before God saved you. Aware of your guilt and need, 
yet trying to earn the Lord's approval in your own strength through your own devices, trying to scheme your way into the kingdom. Well, if that's you this morning, if you are in that place, please know that it's never going to work. You can't earn your way into God's favor. You can't gift your way into it. The only way to be made right with the Lord, the only way to be forgiven of your sin against him, the only way to be made whole is by humbly acknowledging your sin and need and trusting Jesus to save you. The requirement that God asks of us is to come to him with empty hands, the empty hands of faith. Now, that could even be you if you're trusting Jesus today. Are you plagued with a guilty conscience and trying to cover over your sin? It'll never work. But there's good news. God gives grace. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So go to God with your sin and with your guilt. He'll forgive you. He'll cleanse you. That's good news. So that's one. Jacob's sin against Esau. Two, Jacob's prayer to the Lord in verses 9 to 12. So again, in that prayer, Jacob recognizes his unworthiness and God's blessing. He asks the Lord to deliver him and voices his fears, and he reminds God of his promises to him. I think that's a model prayer for us, especially when we're afraid. So the question is, what are you afraid of right now? It may be your own sin. It may be your financial situation, your job status, your relationship with a coworker, family member, or friend, and the list goes on. But in every case, go to the Lord in prayer. If you've sinned, ask God to forgive you. He will. And ask the Lord to deliver you from whatever it is that you fear. Where they fit your circumstances, even pray the Lord's promises back to him. He's not offended by that. And trust God to come through and work for your good as he always does and always will. Certainly, God works for Jacob's good in this passage. I think he's treating him to a severe mercy in the face of a potential attack from his brother. He drives him to a place of humble, desperate prayer. It's a severe mercy. But the Lord also deals him a severe mercy in verses 22 to 32. Let's look at that next. That's our second point, the wrestling match. So after Jacob sends these droves of animals to Esau, he crosses the ford of the Jabbok River with Leah and Rachel, who are his wives and his uncle Laban's daughters. His two female servants are with him. They are also his wives and his 11 children. Now, Jacob sends them across the stream, which leaves him alone. He's by himself during the night. Then verse 24 says, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. It's not clear at first who that man is, but what is evident is that he attacks Jacob. Maybe Jacob even thought it was Esau. The question is, though, why is this man attacking? Well, the text doesn't tell us that right away. Instead, verse 25 says, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket 
and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled him. So we don't know yet why the man attacked, but we do know that he's strong enough with a touch to put Jacob's hip at a joint. I'm no medical professional. That's never happened to me either. But that must have hurt, and that had to take a, a serious amount of strength. But you've got to give credit to Jacob. He, he can't really wrestle anymore. His hip's at a joint, but he does hang on for dear life, and he asked the man to bless him. Verses 26 to 27 say, Then he, that's the man, said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. It's here that the wrestling match starts to get clear. At this time, a name wasn't just a name. It signified a person's nature. It told you who they were. And do you remember what Jacob came to mean? Deceiver. And so when this man, who we're soon going to find out is God, wrestles Jacob and asks him his name, he's asking Jacob to own up to his guilt. Through this act of severe mercy, putting his hip at a joint, God brings Jacob to the place where he is stripped of his strength and he's clinging to God for blessing, admitting that he's a deceiver. That's why God attacked Jacob, attacked Jacob that night. Before Jacob re-entered the promised land of Canaan, God wanted to bring him, a prideful, self-reliant deceiver, to a place of weakness where he humbly admits his need and clings to God for blessing. And once Jacob is there, once, once God brings him to that point, notice what God does for him. Verses 28 to 30 say, Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, which means he... It either means he strives with God or God strives. So your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. So at some point in the night, Jacob realized it. He was wrestling God here. That may have been why God asked Jacob to let him go at daybreak. As God tells Moses in Exodus 33:20, "You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live." Evidently, the darkness must have provided enough cover to allow this fight, to allow Jacob to be able to say, even if his view was obscured, "I've seen God face to face." and yet my life has been delivered. So earlier in this chapter, Jacob asked God to, to deliver him from Esau, but God did Jacob one better. He humbled Jacob, he blessed Jacob, and before he delivers Jacob from Esau, which he will, he delivered Jacob from God. Then in verse 31, and I, I love this, the text says that the sun rose upon him, as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Jacob went into the night fearful, prideful, strong, self-reliant, Jacob. But by God's grace, he emerged in the morning faithful, humble, dependent, Israel. 
Derek Kidner, he sums up this whole event wonderfully. He says, the conflict brought to a head the battling and groping of a lifetime, and Jacob's desperate embrace vividly expressed his, ambivalence, his ambivalent attitude to God of love and enmity, defiance and dependence. It was against him, not Esau or Laban, that he had been pitting his strength, as he now discovered. Yet the initiative had been God's, as it was this night, to chasten his pride and challenge his tenacity. The crippling and the naming show that God's ends were still the same. He would have all of Jacob's will to win, to attain and obtain, yet purged of self-sufficiency and redirected to the proper object of man's love, God himself. It was defeat and victory in one. After the maiming, combativeness had turned to dogged dependence, and Jacob emerged broken, named, and blessed. His limping would be a lasting proof of the reality of the struggle. It had been no dream, and there was sharp judgment in it. The new name would attest his new standing. It was both a mark of grace, wiping out an old reproach, and an accolade to live up to. The blessing this time was untarnished, both in the taking and in the giving. It was his own, uncontrived and unmediated. God shows Jacob grace. He deals him a severe mercy. To help us apply this to our lives, think about what it would have communicated to, his, to its original audience. Remember that Genesis was likely written by Moses after, after the exodus from Egypt and just before the nation of Israel was going into the promised land of Canaan. So like their forefather Jacob, the original recipients of this would have been on their way into Canaan. Sidney Gradonis, he points this out, he concludes, God turned the self-sufficient Jacob into Israel before he could enter in the promised land. The nation of Israel, too, could not enter the promised land in their own strength. They had to rely on God alone and receive the land as a gift from God. The same is true for us today. We receive the kingdom of God not by our hard work, but only by God's grace. It is a gift. Self-made and self-sufficient people cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That would have been a good, loving warning for the people of Israel back then. And it's a good, loving warning for us now. The only way to inherit the kingdom of God, the only way to be saved from your sin and be made right with God is by humbling yourself, confessing your guilt and need, and trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone to save you. You may have heard it said before in a negative sense that Christianity or religion is only for weak people. Well, in a different sense, God agrees. Christianity is only for weak people. It's for those who forsake their sin and pride and embrace Jesus as their Savior and King with humble faith. So again, if you're not trusting Jesus today, I urge you, be reconciled to God. Like we sang earlier, with your whole heart cry out, all unholy and unclean, I am nothing else but sin. On thy mercy I rely, give me Christ or else I die. And do you know how God will respond to that plea? Similar to how he responded to Jacob, Jesus will give you a new identity. He will make you a new creation, and he will lead you out of darkness into the light of day. 
if you're trusting Jesus, you hear this passage and keep clinging to him. We never move past our need for humble reliance on the Lord. We need him every step of the way, moment by moment, second by second, until we make it home. We can't forget that. Like James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, along the way, God will at times treat us to severe mercies. Like he did for Jacob, he will wrestle with us and put our hips out of joint. Like a surgeon, he will wound us in order to heal us. That's loving. When this happens, hear the words of William Cooper. This is from his poem, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. He says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. So Christian, the Lord loves you too much to leave you as you are. He is deeply committed to your everlasting good. He wants you to depend on him and not yourself. He wants to free you from the idols in your heart. He wants to make you more like Jesus. That will sometimes involve trials that will help you kill your sin and grow in faith in ways that would not have been possible otherwise. It will involve severe mercies that, as nothing else can do, show you your sin and need, drive you desperately to cling to Jesus, and end richly blessed. Don't despise the Lord in this. When trials come, hold on to him and don't let go. Trust him. Trust that he loves you, that he is for you, that he has good purposes for you in your pain, that he's going to see you through it. And if you are in the midst of a trial now, if you're in the midst of a severe mercy now, know those things, but know too for what it's worth that your church is here for you. We want to be here for you. We love you and want to come alongside you. We want to weep with you. We want to wait on the Lord with you. We may not have all the answers, but we can come together and help one another trust Jesus when, when the trials come. And hear this too. I, I read this quote earlier this week on Instagram, actually, um, but I, I think it's applicable here. Um, if, if I may, hear this encouragement from Ray Ortland, um, either to prepare us for trials or while we're in them. He says, never give up. Someone else needs you. They need your weakness, anguish, bewilderment. They need to see a buffeted Christian go to Christ and hang on for dear life and make it through. They need that from you today, and they will need the memory of it years from now. Hang on. So even while we're in the midst of trial, the Lord is blessing us. The Lord is also using us to bless others. So wherever you're at, hang on. Cling to Jesus. He is working for your good. He's working for our good. So God deals Jacob a severe mercy through the prospect of an attack by Esau and driving him to desperate prayer. He also deals Jacob a severe mercy by wrestling with him during the night and breaking him of his prideful self-reliance. And 
Jacob limps away from that encounter with a new identity. He's Israel and a blessing from the Lord. Now, it's now that Jacob is ready to face his brother Esau. And that brings us to the last point, the reunion. So at the beginning of chapter 33, after this encounter with God in the night, Jacob sees Esau coming toward him with those 400 men that he had heard about. And again, Jacob strategically arranges his group. He puts the servants with their children in front, Leah with her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. That's actually, I think, a really discouraging move on his part because it shows the favoritism that's still in his heart. He's been changed, yes, but he's still flawed. But an encouraging sign here is that Jacob doesn't hang in the back. No, he, he walks in front of his people, bowing himself to the ground seven times, verse 3 says, until he came near to his brother. Again, he shows deference to Esau and a reversal of sorts of the blessing he received from Isaac in Genesis 27. And then next, something amazing happens. Jacob was terrified that Esau was going to attack him. But Esau's actions could not have been any different. Like the father reacts to the arrival of his prodigal son in Luke 15, in verse 4 of this chapter, Esau runs to Jacob, embraces him, falls on his neck, kisses him, and they weep together. It's a sweet reunion, like sweet reconciliation. Esau had apparently moved past Jacob's actions so many years before. God had apparently changed Esau's heart. And after the two brothers reconcile, Esau asks Jacob who the people with him are. And in verse 5, Jacob responds, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. And then one by one, each group meets Esau and they all bow down. In verse 8, Esau asks Jacob about the droves of animals that he had sent. And Jacob, again, he's still referring to Esau as his Lord. He explains that he was hoping to find favor in Esau's sight. In verse 9, Esau refuses that gift politely, but Jacob insists. And look at verses 10 and 11. He says, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. That's significant, especially given the night that Jacob just had. He had just seen God's face. And now he's saying that Esau's face is like seeing the face of God. What's going on there? Well, I think he may, what he may be getting at is that Esau, like God, showed him grace. God delivered Jacob from God, and now God delivers Jacob from Esau. Esau accepted him. Like, can you imagine what a weight must have been lifted off Jacob's shoulders right here? He, he sinned against Esau when he cheated him out of the blessing all those years ago, and now by God's grace, before he re-enters the promised land of Canaan, he and Esau reconcile. Nevertheless, Jacob still urges Esau to accept his present, his blessing, and Esau takes it. Jacob returns much of the blessing that he was afforded by, by it. I think this is all a, a, a powerful picture of repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. 
by grace through faith in Jesus, God has reconciled us to himself. And I think for us, that dramatically impacts how we respond to our sin now and also how we react when we are sinned against. So when we sin, the first thing we must do is get right with God. We need to humble ourselves, confess our sin, and turn from it. We need to ask God to forgive us and believe that he does. And then if we've sinned against someone else, we need to trust the Lord to take care of us, trust that he loves us, and in faith, go and humbly seek to be reconciled with the person we've wronged. And if we've been sinned against, we must be ready and quick to forgive. That doesn't mean that everything's gonna necessarily go back to the way it was, it may not. But it does mean that we won't be harboring bitterness in our hearts. We won't be holding a person's sin against them. We will show them kindness and forgive. Thankfully, that's how the Lord treats us. He forgives all who come to him with repentant faith. And so we need to hear and put on Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. On well, the rest of this chapter, in Genesis 33, 12 on, Esau invites Jacob to travel with him. But Jacob asks Esau to go on ahead and says he'll, uh, he will go or he, he will come to him in Seir, which is outside of Canaan, slowly at the pace of the livestock and children. So Esau's journeying forward, and Jacob says that odd statement that he will eventually, like implying that he will eventually come to him in Seir. Remember that God commanded Jacob to go to Canaan. So it's questionable that he would lead Esau on like that, like he was gonna go on to Seir. That's outside of Canaan. Again, not sure why Jacob does that, but while he has been changed, by the Lord, he is still a work in progress, and aren't we all? So Esau, he goes on to Seir, and Jacob instead journeys to a place called Succoth, so he doesn't go to Seir with Esau. And then verses 18 and 19 say that he comes safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, and there he buys a piece of property. That's evidence that God is giving his people the land just as he promised. And then finally in verse 20, Jacob builds an altar and he calls it El Elohi Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. I, I just, I love that too. Like up until this point, if we've been following Genesis, it's been the God of Abraham. It's been the God of Isaac. And now after what's happened in these last two chapters, it's the God of Jacob or the God of Israel. God shows grace upon grace upon grace to Jacob in Genesis 32 and 33. He deals Jacob's severe mercies in order to break his pride, bring him to a place of humble desperation and weakness, and cause him to rely on God and cling to God for blessing. God delivers Jacob from God, and God delivers Jacob from Esau too. Did you catch verse 32 of chapter 32? We didn't read that one. It says, therefore to this day, 
the people of Israel, do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. That would have reminded the Israelites of what happened to Jacob. It would have reminded them possibly of their need to humbly trust the Lord and follow him in obedience. It would have reminded them perhaps of God's blessing to their father Israel and by extension to them. Well, now we look to Jesus. Jesus is the better Jacob who has come to save his people from their sins and who opened the way to God for us through his life, death, and resurrection. Tim Keller puts it like this. Jacob held on at the risk of his life to get the blessing for him, but Jesus held on at the cost of his life to get the blessing for us. And like God assumed weakness in order to wrestle and bless Jacob, how else does that wrestling match happen? God had to assume weakness, he could have easily killed Jacob. So like God assumed weakness in order to wrestle and bless Jacob, Jesus embraced weakness in order to bless us. As the apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, 5 to 11, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Bethel, let's keep our eyes on Jesus. Let's cling to him in humble faith and follow him in obedience, trusting that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, that God exalts those who humble themselves. In short, let's embrace the motto, day by day, moment by moment, give me Christ or else I die. Let's pray. Brother, that is our prayer. Give us Christ or else we die. Lord, we, we need Jesus. Lord, we, we need Jesus to be saved from our sin and once, once reconciled to you, we need Jesus to continue to sanctify us, to make us more like himself. We need the power of your spirit conforming us into the image of Christ. And so, Lord, we confess, give us Christ or else we die. Please bless us, Father. Keep us humble. Help us to be a people who willingly, gladly even, embrace our weakness and our need for you. Help us to embrace our weakness and in our weakness, give us strength. Lord, we pray that your power would rest on us. So God, we, we pray again, please bless us. Lord, keep us humble, give us Christ. In his name we pray, amen.